had to be you. Is that men and women can't be friends because the sex part always gets in the way. Welcome to A Talk to You, the Talk Film Society podcast that's all about falling in love on the big screen. I'm your host, Manish Mathur, and it's uh, pretty exciting because this is the four-year anniversary of the podcast. We started back in February 2019 with You've Got Mail, and now we're in the midst of the uh, Bad Romance miniseries, which has been a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, uh, something new for the podcast, talking about toxic relationships, unconventional relationships, just, you know, really getting down and dirty with some interesting and unsettling and disturbing content. And uh, this week is no different for the occasion. I chose uh, David Lynch's Mulholland Drive, often listed among the best films of the century, of the decade, of all time, uh, starring Naomi Watts and uh, Laura Herring. And I have with me here, uh, Maddie Lucas from The Front Row and Interview Online. Hello, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. Really excited to have you on the podcast. Um, uh, You are such a fun follow on Twitter and (laughs) uh, really enjoy your work. So thanks thanks for being here. Thank you. This is exciting. Four years. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. Um, really, yeah, it's been it's been a lot of fun. And you know, doing this miniseries has been a lot of fun as well, just to like talk about some things that, you know, I don't get to talk about too often. Um, one of them being movies like Mulholland Drive, which is, I think, a uh, really interesting movie. I remember seeing it the first time, I think, gosh, back in 2011, 2012, I'm oh, sorry, no, even earlier than that. I think it was like 2009, I think. I was in college, rented it um, and from the library. And uh, yeah, it scared me so much. I like couldn't sleep. And one of those movies where, you know, you're scared and it's upsetting, it's troubling, but you just can't, can't stay away from for too long. So seen it a few times then, it's still, certain scenes still do scare me and um but I've gotten a lot more comfortable with it. I really have enjoyed it. Um, and it's opened a lot of doors for me with David Lynch, you know, having seen stuff like Blue Velvet, of course, and Lost Highway. I think Inland Empire, I survived watching that. Um, <laughs> and that's a really hard movie to watch. Um, but I really do uh, enjoy his work. And I'm just curious about kind of what your relationship is with David Lynch, if you have one. And if you remember the first time you saw this film. I do, actually. Um, I I saw it back when it first came out. It would have been, I didn't see it in theaters. I would have seen it on, uh, I, I would have rented it, I believe. Um, so I was in high school when it came out. And my parents were still very, like, strict about what I watched. So I would often go to my grandpa's house and I would rent the R-rated movies that they wouldn't let me watch. So <laughs> I saw a lot of things at my grandpa's house and Mulholland Drive was one of those films. And uh, I remember, you know, I was probably uh, 15 or 16 at the time and just never really having experienced anything like it before. And I remember after it was over, just kind of sitting there blown away and thinking that I didn't understand any of what I had just seen, but I knew it was brilliant. And I was <laughs> completely blown away. Uh, it, it's just such an incredible mood piece. Like, even if you're not able to follow the plot, and I, I think often Lynch himself isn't able to follow the plot. <laughs> Having read interviews with him about it and, you know, all the twists and turns that the film takes that, you know, it's it's not really meant to have a lot of answers. It's meant to raise a lot of questions. So I, I think, you know, that that experience of watching it for the first time 
especially at the age that I encountered it, uh, it was very special. Uh, and then later on, I, I ended up buying it and watching it again. And I had a, I actually had a, a film critique class in high school, uh, which you don't see a lot of. Um, and yeah. my teacher was obsessed with David Lynch. And he showed us um, the pilot for Twin Peaks. Uh, and so I kind of got into it from there, uh, exploring more of Lynch's work. I think the only thing I haven't seen is Lost Highway, and it's sitting on my shelf, and I need to get to it. But uh, yeah, I, I think he's a fascinating filmmaker and, and probably one of the best filmmakers working today. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I remember listening to, I listened to some podcast interview with Laura Dern, and she was like, you know, David Lynch is all like, his movies are very dark, they're very troubling, they're upsetting, but he's like so normal in real life. She was like, we have him over for the holiday dinners and like, he's a big family man and like, or, uh, or at least he like loves her children. And I'm like, it's great to like have a filmmaker who can like do all this stuff and then like, you know, go home and just like live his life. <laughs> you know, and he seems like, I think from his very, you know, um, his online presence, such as it is, just seems very much like, you know, a very pleasant person to be around, a very, like, positive person. Um, and I think that comes across in his movies, which I think, like, as dark as they are, usually have, for me, like, some element of, like, fighting sort of this, you know, patriarchal evil society that, you know, he's, his movies, I think, are very empathetic and very, um, you know, they i like to say they like punch up you know at least from my interpretation mm -hmm. i feel maholland drive is very much it's a lot about it a lot of it's about a lot of different things but to me it always feels like a good solid indictment of you know exploitation and in, in hollywood and mm -hmm. um things like that and um i feel like maholland drive is you know i i think it's a it's obviously a queer movie but i i think like his whole career is very queer because you know, there's a lot of his movies kind of remind me of like the Wachowskis in the sense of like, I feel like their movies are very much about like bodies and like, you know, um, sort of like, uh, I, I, I'm trying, like the sort of like transformation or like kind of things like that. And I think that like, um, also just like in, I feel like David Lynch, like he really eschews a lot of like conventional filmmaking techniques which I, I like to associate that with like queer cinema movements which are very much like um you know they kind of go their own path they really don't do like traditional three-act structures and I feel like mm. Mulholland Drive is a movie that's like easy to get lost in a lot of like interpretations but I feel that it like um I feel like it resists interpretation in, in a lot of ways and you it's like the more you try to like pin it down, the more it kind of escapes you. I don't know. That's your experience of the film as well. Well, it's funny too. You know, you talked about yeah. the darkness. I think that's one thing I've always liked about Lynch is even in, in the darkest places, he finds humor and he, he, he acknowledges how strange what we're seeing is. Yeah. Um, uh, I rewatched I re most of the film before, before we had our, um, before we recorded and uh just little things that i that i had kind of forgotten about like the the two detectives when they're um when they're arrive on the wreck scene at the beginning of the movie and they're just kind of these bumbling idiots but they're kind of this hard-boiled uh caricature of a detective and there there's other little moments peppered throughout where when um when the director meets the cowboy character at the ranch and we're kind of in his shoes in that moment we're like this is really fucking weird <laughs> and yeah the movie kind of acknowledges that but it it still plays the weirdness straight it acknowledges those moments of uh surrealism and how characters at, in some instances treat it like it's totally normal and in other instances are kind of like what the fuck am i doing here yeah and i, I I appreciate that about Lynch, and that's something that goes through his entire work. It's not weird for weirdness's sake. Uh, it, it it carries the story along. It, it brings the audience into it. it. It never alienates the audience, I don't think. He makes it okay to laugh mm -hmm. at uh, some of the strange things that are going on. 
Yeah, I mean, like one of my favorite sequences is that like bumbling hitman, you know, in the first, yes, and yes. the first two thirds of the movie, and um, how it's just like, uh, yeah, it, I think he's he's really good at like kind of mixing these genres and being very knowing about the like weirdness in his movies. And yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I don't think it's like, I mean, I've seen a lot of movies that are just like weird because it's like, Hey, let's just throw something at the screen and whatever. But he's, I think he's very thoughtful. And I think that carries through in his explorations of, you know, these kind of dark themes. I think he's always very thoughtful and um, yeah. I mean, I like, I want to talk about the, you know, of course, like the central romance, the kind of love triangle in this movie. And mm. um, I really, I it always surprises me how much of the movie is the like Betty part. <laughs> you yes. know, like for some reason in my mind, I always think of it as like half and half. But mm-hmm. it's really, I think you only really get to see like Diane, like in the last like half hour, hour, 40 minutes or so. Like it's really short. And, um, I was like, oh, you know, you know, your mind, like my mind always races when I watch this movie, and I'm like, you know, what if, like, you know, like, if one part of the movie is the dream and another part is reality, like, what if Diane is the dream, you know, and that's sort of like this like negative projection of like what Betty's life could be, and because um, I find this romance in the first, you know, the sort of like Betty part of the film to be really. Um, it's really quite moving in a sense, but then it also feels very like not icky, but just a little like uncomfortable um, because it feels so surreal and it feels so like, um, you know, it just feels so like hard to like their romance doesn't come from like chemistry. I mean, they're like they do have a chemistry, but it's not like they're courting each other. It's just like, they're in this very like they're in this like mystery and it just like you know it it just yeah. kind of bl- blossoms or happens i don't know what, what's your take on on that you said that you you started the podcast with you've got mail we're we're a long way from you've got yeah, mail I know. <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> uh, it's funny because um before when, after you had approached me about uh, guesting on the podcast with this particular film, I um, was trying to explain the movie to my boyfriend who had never seen it, never heard of it. And I was like, well, it's kind of a lesbian love story, but it's sort of not. And there's these two women and one is a plucky young actress uh, and one doesn't remember who she is. Uh, or maybe it's the other way around. And or maybe they're the same person. Right. Uh, but- it's really beautiful and but it's also really scary and haunting and dark and it's <laughs> it, it's it it kind of defies explanation at every turn it's like every time yeah. you 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 come to a, okay well this is the answer this is what's going on but there's something else in the movie that's like well well no maybe it's this other thing and i i've heard it i've heard it described as uh or compared to vertigo i've heard it compared to sunset boulevard and i i think there's there's some truth in both of those uh you mentioned earlier how it's this critique of exploitation i think you know if if the betty of the 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 beginning of the film sees los angeles as this city where dreams come true uh i think lynch is also saying that it's uh, a place where nightmares also come true uh how you see that that probably one of the most famous moments in the movie is when in the diner in winkies and the the man is talking about this dream that he had that there's no way this dream could be real and they take him out to the back and then that creature comes from around the back of the dumpster which is just such a terrifying moment <laughs> i remember like jumping out of my seat the first oh yeah time. i still can't watch it i i like <laughs> i watch it through my hands you know <laughs> yes and it's it's horrifying and yeah. In, in a way that a lot of movies never really achieve, no matter how hard they try. That one moment in Mohan Drive is so scary. Um, but yeah, I, I, I to get back to what you were saying about the love story, it's it, sometimes it's a love story and it's almost like an anti-love story at the yeah. same time. And is this how all happening in Betty's head or is it all happening in Diane's head or Diane and Betty, the same person, you know, the, the, I think you could, you could look at it either way that the the opening in my head the opening sequence the betty stuff is mostly the dream but 
is is the the latter part the dream you know who whose whose dream are we we really watching and I, I think that's what makes it such an interesting yeah um you know like in talking about um you know camilla and diane versus like betty and and rita as like these like two mirror versions of this love story um i i really thought of phantom thread uh because i remember reading um and i we did phantom thread on this podcast about two years ago i believe and um and uh, in that episode, I talked about there was an interview with, I think, with Paul Thomas Anderson, who was like, there's a there's one week where I was sick and, you know, his wife, Maya Rudolph, took care of him. And he that's how, like, this idea of, like, being so, like, submissive to someone as they take care of you when you're, like, de- deathly ill. Mm. Um, that's how the that's how Phantom Thread was kind of born from. And this idea of, like, you know how great it is to be in control of someone when you're nurturing them, and I th- I really thought of that kind of that concept with the with the like Rita Betty portion of the film because of like you know how however much like Camilla is outside of Diane's grasp like in this like fantasy she like concocts a scenario where like you know Rita is like she has amnesia she doesn't know where she is she's in danger she's like just like femme fatale but like not but like kind of not because she's like not exactly exactly dangerous but and like kind of being this like situation where like betty has all this control even as the one who's like naively from canada in la for the first time um she has this control she's confident she's you know she initiates their sexual encounter and i just thought of this idea of like again like you know, kind of recasting yourself as this, you know, more dominant, more in control figure in a relationship when you are feeling like you're losing it, you know, mm-hmm. by the second. There, there's definitely that element of you know romantic obsession there, um, and that that's where those comparisons to Vertigo come from. But mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's that's an interesting an interesting read on it with uh, the way that she's so so much of the film is kind of her her way of reframing her own reality or taking control of her own reality um when it wasn't necessarily going her way this this gives her a chance to kind of rewrite her own story and being and be in more control of it even if ultimately at the end she's not yeah i mean that even comes through in her audition like as Betty, she aces the audition. She does this really subtle, you know, very like, you know, sexy performance. Yeah. But in reality, she's like a failed actor. She like can only get bit parts and she's like loses out roles and things like that. And, um, you know, I think it's this, you know, I think like places like Hollywood have this very like seductive power to them where like stardom is just a, you know, quick audition away. And I think this like reconciling the reality of that versus the fantasy of it, I think is what makes this movie really tragic for me. And I mean, as scary as it is, as funny as it is, like, I just feel sad when it's over. <laughs> it's like this poor, you know, Diane, whether she's reality or or the fantasy or whatever, it's just like, you know, Naomi Watts' performance in that last act of the film is so heartbreaking. I mean, she like, you know, that was, I think that's like the, like, I remember being like, oh, that's depression when I was, you know, 19 or whatever, watching the movie for the first time. Mm-hmm. And just like, oh, I did not know that like, you could show that in a movie, you know, like that kind of raw portrayal of like that, like deep, deep, you know. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's really, um, but like you said, like, I feel like this movie really avoid, like, it doesn't allow you to give, an easy interpretation of it i mean there's so many like blogs and articles and reviews that have totally wildly different takes on the movie and i think it's like you know um I have you ever like read those like 10 clues that david lynch i was literally like... just thinking about those i yeah they were in the dvd that i bought right i remember yeah and i i i think all they did 
were muddy the waters for me. I think they yeah, just right. <laughs> work when you're trying to apply. Cause one of the things was like, what do you learn in the first minute of the movie when, you know, and that's the, the first minute is just that, that dancing sequence with yeah. the, the, and you know, he's trying to, well, there's an answer there. And I remember I played it over and over and over again, watching that. And I, I yeah. <laughs> it was like missing the forest for the trees, really. Like I was fixating on the little things that he was saying and, and missing the big picture of the film. Um, which yeah. Is... I feel like there's something about like a red lamp too, or, or something, or like pay attention to like who opens, who answers the phone and when, and I, when I was younger, I was like pouring through those, like exactly as you were saying, and like trying to like catch the mystery. And like, I think there was this, like one website, maholland-drive.net. I think it's closed now or defunct now, but I had all these theories on it and all these like, you know, connections and clues and like stuff like that. And I would like pour over it all the time. And um, now I'm just like, oh, wow, like that's so like not the point of the movie. And I, I'm kind of wondering if he was like laughing at us as he's writing those like useless clues. I would be fascinated to know um, what what it would have looked like had it been the way it was originally intended as an ABC television series. Oh, I was just going to bring that up too, actually. Yeah, let's let's talk about that. I Because I mean, it was a pilot and then they rejected it and long story short two years later he decides to finish it as a feature so they had to reshoot and add a lot of things there's about 50 minutes i think of footage in it that was shot two years after the rest of it um and i don't think and i i don't know what's new and what's not and he won't say (laughs) so you know, I, I wonder if it had been a more conventional television series, would there have been more answers um, or did he start it and not really know the answers himself? Um, and yeah. that's it's so open ended. I, I am curious to I, I'm glad it worked out the way it did because it's uh, an amazing film. But uh, yeah, there's yeah. a part of me that's like, what would it have looked like? I mean, like, yeah, I think about that, too. Like, especially when I was watching it this time around, I was like. Well, I can kind of see, like, okay, there's, you know, Adam as the director, like, Justin Thoreau as the director, there's, like, Rita and her whole past, there's, you know, Betty's career, there's the, you know, there's the assassin, there's the guy, the two men at Winkies, like, there's, like, all these different side subplots that, you know, you can see spinning out into different, you know, arcs throughout a season, like, especially Mm -hmm. when you look at, you know, like an ABC shows, like, you know, all these shows have like various characters that have their own little subplots. Sometimes they converge, sometimes they don't. And like, um, and then to like tie it all together, you know, it's kind of like, my assumption is that like the first, like Betty, the whole like Betty part of the movie was the TV show. And then he added the ending, but I guess maybe that's not how it was. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm kind of glad he's not telling us because I feel like it's just another way for us to sort of like, literalize the movie that really feels like a like dream logic and like a dreamscape you know and it's like we don't need to know because like that's not the point of the movie i always thought when i was younger that the the pilot was everything up until they unlocked the blue box and then yeah after that was what they added to it to kind of tie it up or yeah, yeah. tie it up as the case may be right. uh, but i don't i don't think that's what happened um because it makes sense because like i remember the the second time i watched the movie being kind of like you know all these like threads are just kind of like left open you know like we don't know who's after rita we don't really know all these like you know like who those who those men were at the diner and like i was kind of like wait like we just kind of ended not like it didn't end but like it kind of shifts into this whole new story and doesn't really resolve a lot of the stuff that's in there. And like now, of course, I appreciate that being like the intent or like the fabric of the movie. But um, yeah, because there, there's a lot of, I mean, it is funny when you think about like, you know, nowadays when people watch movies for like the plot, and it's like, if it doesn't advance the plot, then like people just don't want it in the movie. I mean, because I feel like people have kind of like lost the like, I don't know, media literacy or whatever. They lost the uh, yeah literally yeah um exactly <laughs> yeah and so um yeah just like 
I, I appreciate how little, I, I appreciate how like all that becomes part of like the like thematic symbolism and like the like connections that you make, you know, sort of subtextually versus like, you know, oh, here's the answer to the hitman and like what he was doing or like, you know, here's how like the two minute winkies were going to tie into Rita's plot or whatever. Like, I, I appreciate the like, you know, the transience of it all. And I, I enjoy the way that that he ends it. I, I think ending on that club silencio that that the just hearing silencio in that moment. I think it's almost like Lynch telling us, "I'm not going to tell you anything." <laughs> it's yeah. like I'm, I'm keeping quiet on this. This is this is for you all to figure out. Um, uh, I I think that's that's one thing that makes it so fascinating because you're kind of waiting for an answer and then you don't get one. And then it's, it's just such a gut punch of an ending that. Yeah. Yeah. I can't um, imagine it being on ABC. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, like considering, um, I don't know. I, I think, I think considering that like, um, you know how like i never watched the second season of twin peaks but from what i've heard it's like it kind of gets lost a little just because i think that he uh, this is like very foggy memory so you know if anyone knows any better please correct me but i felt like he wasn't as interested in like like delivering an answer mm -hmm. to who killed laura palmer like at least at first so then like but he was kind of forced to because i think like the executives were like you need to answer this for the audience because like otherwise they're going to lose interest and then like um so I, I can imagine that like yeah like he probably would have been forced to like tie up all these loose ends and it's kind of like a cool way to again like really like throw out the like the book on like conventional filmmaking and really do something that's like wild and different and kind of leaves your audience satisfied but unsatisfied I often think about this quote um, from Robert Altman, and it was around the, around the same time uh, he was talking about his movie Gosford Park that came out the same year as Mulholland Drive, and um, he said, "It's not a who done it; it's a who cares who done it," mm -hmm. because the the actual answer to the mystery was completely besides the point of the movie, and I, I think yeah. that. Uh, Twin Peaks was a very similar situation and you know audience who killed Laura Palmer became this this huge cultural thing and people wanted an answer and that was never what Lynch was really trying to do um and I, I think that's a, a very similar thing with Mulholland Drive is if if you're looking for easy neat tidy answers then then you're looking at it the wrong way yeah yeah um yeah I agree and I and I I think that um I think even like within the relationships of the movie, I think there really aren't any tidy answers. Like, you know, when you think about the love triangle between like Diane, Camilla and Adam, it's like, well, you know, w you know, one way you can see Diane is like, you know, she's the, you know, the like discharged, you know, ex, you know, because like, oh, you know, like Camilla, he could climb stardom, you know, by, you know, marrying a, a male director and not, and like kind of either, you know, like whatever her orientation is, whether she's a lesbian who is doing, is like marrying a man for a career or she's bisexual, like, you know, we don't know, but like mm -hmm. understanding like, you know, okay, that, but then it's also like, well, you know, maybe this was just kind of a fling and, you know, like Camilla isn't really the villain that, you know, she's being portrayed and that like Diane is like obsessive over this, you know, minor relationship or, you know, there's just different ways to like analyze it. And um, I find that like, it's, you know, like, you know, considering like whose perspective we're seeing, like we don't really know like how the other characters are experiencing these events as well. So I think it's like really, um, I don't know, I guess this time around, I was kind of like, I actually might not find Diane to be a totally reliable narrator considering her own experiences and her own like obsessive nature. And like the fact that like she goes straight to hiring a hitman is kind of wild to me. I'm like, right. I don't think I've, 
I've had many bad exes. I've never considered murdering any of them. <laughs> and did they know each other at all? Was this like some kind of parasocial relationship where she was completely projecting all of this onto someone who really had Yeah. It's... Yeah. I didn't even think of that. Yeah. I mean, we live in an era of parasocial relationships and it's totally feasible that like there was no, I mean, cause even the, the like one scene where we see them kind of like, I don't know, wearing like, jean shorts and being topless i'm like i don't know if lesbians actually hang around their house like that but okay <laughs> um that's something i do want to talk about sort of like the depiction of the queerness in the weeks I, I think is interesting um but yeah that's also could be read as like a fantasy or like a um or maybe it did happen but it was just like a one night thing that got blown in in, in something bigger by Diana now she's just like obsessing over it or she like had this like all about evening where she's like obsessed with someone because she kept losing roles to them I mean that's not really all about Eve but like that kind of like you know obsessive jealousy thing that's that's kind of the view that I've always kind of taken with it um Mm -hmm. that it's that that much of what we're seeing is is inside her head and she's just kind of deteriorating and she's projecting a lot of a lot of things that are just not there are feeling or it's either wish fulfillment or trying to to reclaim her life that you know she's this failed yeah. actress who's missing out on all these things and so she's concocted this story for herself where she's this bright young ingenue and the person that is the object of her affections is someone who's now helpless and she's helping them and it's there that's kind of the read that i like um but it's uh I, I don't think that it's a straightforward answer there at all. Yeah. No, I mean, I think what makes this movie so, you know, intoxicating and so intriguing and alluring is that you really can analyze this stuff in a million different ways and everything is valid. You know, like this movie is, um, you know, it's not like it's a blank canvas, but like, um, he just really like is really excellent at just like depicting things in such a way that you don't really quite know what's happening, you know? And like, um, I really love kind of David Lynch's very like somewhat stilted dialogue, like, um, and it feels very intentional, right? Like, especially in like the, this Betty part of the movie where everything feels so like, um, Oh, what's the word? Um, it feels like an old Hollywood movie. I think. Yeah, I think like it has like old fashioned, like gee whiz kind of thing. Yeah, and uh, I really actually do. I like that style of dialogue, especially because it feels very meta in a way, and very like unsettling too. Yeah, it's like a it's a projection of a Hollywood movie that that the ideal of what Betty thinks that Hollywood is going to be. She's she's living in this fake dream factory projection that's not there yeah especially with those like very scary you know old people yes <laughs> um oh my god the scene when they're in the car and like they're just smiling at each other is so scary to me i love that because it's that's such a lynchian moment too it's because it doesn't really have anything to do with what else is going on in that moment the the old people just get off the plane with her and instead of following her for a second it follows the old people and then they're just these weird creepy i it's just such a neat uniquely lynchian thing i think with with how he he lets you know right off the bat something is very very wrong even though everything seems happy and bubbly and perfect there's yeah there's something it you know it's the way how he opens um blue velvet with this the idyllic the roses and everything's beautiful and the grass is so green and then he zooms underneath and then there's the 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 beetles are fighting each other and yeah, yeah. there's something going on beneath the surface yeah i once read this um article about how like that shot of the grandparents is like confirmation that like Diane was like abused by her grandparents when she was younger and that like you know she's rewriting them as like these like kind older people that you know are friendly to her and that like Aunt Ruth was like the only relative that she like could trust or something something like wild like that and I'm like I mean I guess like 
you know, if the symptoms that, you know, Diane has in the latter, you know, act of the movie are potential symptoms, like side effects or like things that, you know, survivors have, then it makes sense. But I don't think it's like written in the film. I think it's just like, again, like a projection that you can make and a theory you can have. And that, that's what makes it more powerful is that like, I don't think anything is really incorrect when you talk about this movie. Well, yeah, I mean, so much of it, of what we're seeing is projection from the characters that it lends itself to projection from the audience too. Yeah. Um, you asked about the, the the depiction of queerness. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of the next topic yeah. I wanted to touch on. I, you know, when I was trying to describe this to my boyfriend, I said something about it being a lesbian love story, uh, or is it? And he said, "Wait, do you mean are they really lesbians or are they really in love?" And I was like, "Yes, <laughs> <laughs> uh, both." Uh, you know, I, I the like you said it doesn't like do lesbians actually behave like that i mean no but (laughs) uh it it, it's interesting to me that lynch actually like even even in the sex scenes even as they get more graphic he actually like blurs out parts of it like screen like he wants it very much to not be about to not be male gazy to not be about the 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 sexuality of what we're seeing in the moment and i think that's interesting it's not that he doesn't want to be more graphic i don't think but i think he wants you to not pay attention to the the actual like the nudity or the the actual sex part of it because that's not the point of what we're seeing and you know are are they really in love is this obsession is this something that she's imagined i'm not even sure that she's actually in love with her i think she's obsessed with her yeah and so i i don't think that you know, she may not even actually be a lesbian. She's just, she wants to be this person, consume yeah. this person. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely an element of consumption. Um, and, you know, I've always kind of, yeah, like, I mean, the comparison to Vertigo, I feel really strongly um, in this part because I feel like, you know, Vertigo is one, probably one of my favorite movies, my favorite Hitchcock movie for sure. And like, I've seen it a million times. I've had a million different, relationships with that movie as well as I've gotten older um, and a little bit more aware of the world and, and, and stuff. And, um, you know, I have that same feeling of like that, like sinking tragedy feeling that I have with Mahon drive and I have it with vertigo as well. of just like, this is just like really sad people kind of enacting these situations where they're only bound to get hurt physically and emotionally. And, um, but I think in Vertigo, there's also this element of like possession and and just like yeah, like consumed, consuming someone so that they are, you know, essentially like your plaything. And I think that's what that's what Rita is, right? Is like she's got dressed up like a doll and she looks just like you know Betty. And they like they're like I feel like the sex scene is like less about like eroticism and more about like the commingling of the two selves. Um, and like there's a whole section on the wikipedia page for this movie that talks about like the queerness in the, in the film and as with any depiction of queerness is very divisive and um definitely uh, there was like a lot of quotes about you know how this movie perpetuates sort of like lesbian relationships cliches such as like the um you know the evil bisexual you know like um you know a, a queer woman marrying a man for you know, fame and, and fortune, et cetera. And, and I don't know. I just, I just feel like that's again, proje- projection. <laughs> and I feel like David Lynch is not interested in that. And I don't think he, you know, I don't think he put this out there in the sense to like harm queer people. And I don't know, maybe I'm being too kind to him, but I just feel like he's more interested in like how all this plays in this like theme of like exploitation and, you know, the merging of, uh personas yeah i I would argue reads like that are 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 missing the point um i I don't think that there was anything necessarily negative i mean this was 2001 keep in mind but you know i i don't think that there was anything intentionally meant to be to be negative on lynch's part yeah Uh, and, and in fact, I think there's a there's a very good read that the the characters might not even be queer. Right. Um, it, it's just through 
through that singular obsession where it, it it takes on the sheen of a romance or it may have been mistaken for a romance in her mind. Um, yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree. And, and I think that like, it's, you know, it's, I think it's a tempting, but ultimately uncharitable read on the movie, especially when you think about like Camilla and Adam as like real people. Um, you know, we don't know what the relationship is like. We also don't know that like, you know, I think there's the implication that like maybe Camilla like slept her way to the top or like doesn't deserve her success, but um, she could just be a really good actress and a really like compelling movie star, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, um, I feel like there's, you know, this idea of like the obsession and like wanting to be her and projecting this like negativity towards that relationship and towards her career. Um, but I don't know. I feel like it's, it's almost too easy to read the movie that way. And I feel like this movie, again, like is really determined not to be read in the most like straightforward way possible. I mean, I think there's something definitely inherently queer about that idea of, yeah. um, of consumption and, and wanting to inhabit essentially someone else's skin. I mean, she's not necessarily, you could read it that she's in love with her or you could read it that, you know, she, she wants to be her or, you know, there, there's, there's something almost autoerotic about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's all kinds of um, interesting ways uh, in which her obsession or her desire is, is inherently erotic, even if maybe she doesn't, understand that um, yeah i think is interesting Mm -hmm. um i do want to also talk about adam a little bit more played by justin thoreau Mm -hmm. it's kind of crazy that like he i feel like he was like famous in this time and then like kind of wasn't that famous and then he like wrote iron man 2 out of nowhere i mean not out of nowhere i think he like is friends with all those people like John Favreau or whatever. And then he's on the leftovers and he like becomes like really famous again. And like a major, like, I don't know, somewhat sex symbol now, um, which is, I don't know. He just looks so young in this movie. Um, I always but, forget that it's him. I always, yeah, right. I, him, I don't recognize him. And then I hear Justin throw and I'm like, Oh yeah, the guy from Mulholland drive. <laughs> right. Um, a former Jennifer Aniston, like fiance, I think. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I really like the um in like sort of like the Betty part of the movie is just like this like ultimate like him like emasculation of him. And like I can imagine that like okay, if this is like Diane's like fantasy, <laughs> like how like um it's almost like comical, just like how much like his is just like being like totally like, emasculated at every turn. Like his career is taken away from him, his wife is cheating on him with uh Billy Ray Cyrus. <laughs> Like, he damages his, like, you know, sports car, and, like, um, he's also making this, like, cheesy 60s movie, and, like, this movie that looks so, like, not bad, but just, like, whatever, is, like, the subject of all this, like, intense, like, mafia, like, you know, and again, like, this idea of, like, you know, Diane being, like, oh, like, of course, like, I'm making this part because of the mafia, like, such a, again, like, another extreme conclusion that she makes um but i just like i don't like you were saying earlier like this movie has some like comedy in it and i just really appreciated that that section of the film of like she's taking her revenge out on this guy in her fantasy billy ray cyrus as like the super understanding guy (laughs) that his wife is cheating on him with is so funny to me because he's like come on man that's no way to treat your wife no matter what she did to you like you know well he was just fucking her in the bedroom (laughs) it's just it's easy for him to say but it's it it, it is funny that justin throw's character is is like cuckolded every step of the way like like yeah okay well his wife's sleeping with billy ray cyrus but you know he's not even in charge of his own movie like his his movie's been taken away from him yet he still has to direct it but all the decisions are being made by somebody else and it's yeah it is it's it's comical it also feels like um i mean i'm sure this is happening back in 2001 but it also feels like a uh um, foreshadowing of like all these like Marvel directors or like Star Wars directors who are like hired, but then like also like have to deal with this like, you know, essentially like guidebooks of like how to direct these kinds of movies so that they make the most money, most amount of money possible. 
yeah. and like you know with kevin faggy as like you know the mafia in this movie <laughs> um, and like i mean you know I just like I don't know, I thought it was I'm sure, like again I'm sure that was happening back then with like big budget movies and stuff but I just like I was watching it now and I'm like you know this isn't that far off from like what happened on like Rogue One you know or you know um uh the uh solo movie or you know uh like Thor the Dark World or whatever like it's not that far off like um, and now we just know about it because of like social media and like 24 hour news coverage of this stuff. But like, um, it's just, I don't know, it's just an interesting parallel to real life. Yeah. I mean, the, the director for higher thing was definitely going on back then. I think it's, it's kind of morphed into a, a, a unique sort of monster, uh, in the age of mega conglomerates like Disney that it, it yeah have been as big back then as it is now but th- that is some interesting foreshadowing or like a warning about that kind of uh well especially now like i mean i know directors like yeah maybe it's kind of like they have to play nice during like promotion and like i'm sure some of them will come out later and say like well this happened and that happened but like for the most part like it's kind of like well they get their paycheck they get their hands on you know a big franchise and like they get some clout and so it's like I feel like they don't react as negatively to it as Adam does. Although who knows, I'm not there. So maybe, maybe they do privately, but I feel like they're much better at like playing the game, you know, in public. I miss the days when directors would take their names off of the movie and credit Alan Smithy. I know. I know. Oh man. I know. I just like, that would, uh, I, I would love it if like someone did that now or, or something as like, you know, something big like that. I just feel like they're too scared. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, How familiar are you, were you, are you slash were you with like Ann Miller? Because this is her final movie. And of course she was like, she was like semi-famous back in the 50s. I think I saw her in uh, Kiss Me Kate. I think that's like her like major role. But um, what was your kind of history with her? And what do you think about her her in this movie? So when I first saw the movie, I did not know who she was. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was my grandpa who actually pointed it out. Like he he never really watched the stuff that I would bring home to watch. Oh yeah, like, I was just gonna ask. I was like, um, did you, did he watch? I was like, what did Grandpa think of Mulholland Drive? I, I he didn't he didn't watch it start to finish. Yeah, but he, he definitely. He he pointed out to me, he said, that's Ann Miller. And I didn't know who Ann Miller was. And he said that she used to be the queen of tap um, back in the day. And I, I I had not encountered her before then. 2001 was really the year I, I really started getting into to film seriously. Um, and I've, I've since seen, I mean, I've seen Easter Parade. You can't take it with you. Um, I haven't seen a lot of her stuff. Um, but I, I think that it's it fits that world because like we were talking about earlier the the whole betty sequence is kind of heightened and feels kind of has this it it rings false a little bit on purpose right uh, because the dialogue is kind of stilted or kind of heightened um and I think Ann Miller brings that sort of style to it because of yeah. the era in which she was so active back in the forties and fifties and that kind of heightened Hollywood acting style is still, that's that's still kind of how she's acting. And I, I think it really adds something. It tickles me to no end when she comes out and she's, you know, you know, immediately starts doing something that the production code never would have allowed her to do in the fifties. She's complaining about the dog shit on the, right on the sidewalk and then goes into this thing about somebody with a fighting kangaroo, um, which reminded me of another movie that I can't quite bring to, it was, I think million dollar mermaid. Maybe there's somebody with a fighting kangaroo in, the, in an old musical back in the fifties that it, it mm. uh, brought back to my memory but yeah i i think having ann miller there is is perfect that it's just such a neat thing for her to be there and um that, and i i thought it was fascinating that i mean she probably hadn't been in a movie in decades before yeah. drive came out and my grandpa was immediately like that's ann miller and 
I didn't know what he was talking about until the credits rolled. And I'm like, oh, there was, there's Ann Miller. Yeah. So I think that's, I, I think it's really cool to be able to see her in that mode. Yeah. I mean, I, I have very similar, right? I did not know who that was um, until I think like I was reading something about this movie where they were like, yeah, he cast a bunch of like, you know, old, old Hollywood actors um, to uh, kind of play these like bit parts or like supporting roles. And um, it really had me thinking of like how, um, you know, like in the real world, like, you know, you were saying like she hadn't been in movies since then, since like, you know, for a couple of decades, I'm sure that's true. Or if anything, like she wasn't, she didn't maintain that level of like stardom, you know, and, um, and uh, it had me thinking about like, well, you know, how like, um, how like, uh fickle stardom can be right but you can imagine like an ann miller type you know having to be a, a landlady or a manager of a complex like that um when she's like her roles are drying up or something or like having like um you know having that kind of situation and you're wondering like you know what's what's like the future for betty or for camilla or for any of these actors who are out and like even like you know um like uh, Dan says a line at the diner when she's meeting the hitman, saying like, you know, everyone has, a, you know, an actor's resume in this town, and it had me thinking about all these like side characters, <laughs> like, you know, the like the hitman, the, that that sex worker that is in that one scene, um, like all these people, Aunt Ruth, her like worked in Hollywood and now are like on the fringes of it because like they couldn't quite make it. Um, and, uh, you know, like one, one can just imagine that like, you know, you know, Camilla, she, she is an actress, famous movie star. And then 20 years later, she's, you know, has to like do this or that, um, to like manage in a complex or, you know, work auditions or something and not be, not have that level of stardom. And I think it's another kind of commentary about like Hollywood and it's sort of like fickle in nature. It's sort of similar to me um, to what Billy Wilder did in Sunset Boulevard, how mm-hmm. he's got uh, people from the silent era like Buster Keaton and Eric von Stroheim. And uh, I mean, even Gloria Swanson was an old silent actor and um, he, he kind of brought people to some degree out of mothballs um, yeah. to, to, to make that social commentary that he was making about Hollywood really, really stick in. And I, I think there's something similar there. Like you said, with, with Mulholland drive, there's that character. Uh, I can't remember her name that, that comes to the door and says, someone's in trouble. Uh, and then Ann Miller has to come and get rid of her. And the, the, yeah. the, the vibe that you get from her is that she's, she's an old, an older actress who's now living out her years in this little apartment complex. Um, right, right. This is kind of where, dreams go to die <laughs> people uh have these dreams of stardom and don't make it or they get a taste of it and then they're thrown away and you know they're they're left acting out their scenes in these shabby courtyards and the side streets of los angeles and um i think having some of these older character actors um like ann miller or um you know robert forster being there uh other characters like that is um yeah yeah and i you know that final like engagement not final scene but like that sort of climactic you know uh, engagement dinner scene like i felt like coco is her name in that section like i feel like she kind of caught on to something or at least maybe like you know, diet and her like obsession, parasocial, whatever is like reading, projecting that onto it. But like, I really like that performance because it's very mysterious. And like, you can kind of read that, like, she kind of understands like exactly what's happening, <laughs> you know, or, you know, and like, she's a little bit more aware of, um, of like Camilla, you know, if we want to read, read Camilla that way or read kind of the situation that way. But like, I like that performance a lot because I feel like it's really, like for as like heightened as she is in sort of the Betty part of the movie, I think Ed Miller's performance gets really subtle and um, uh, really fascinating in that last act. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting looking at the movie as like this, this kind of twisted Rashomon where it's almost like three different sections mm-hmm. that are telling 
sort of the, a similar story from from different angles and where you kind of recast characters and names and people and it's it, it adds up to such a fascinating whole um yeah even if, yeah it there's so many threads it's almost impossible to kind of connect all of them but you you can follow each one down a rabbit hole um that that can twist the whole movie into being something else and i i love that about it yeah yeah i think i read somewhere that it's like one of those um oh god what it's called uh, omnibus strips no that's the right phrase like one of those like things that like don't there's like no beginning and no end it just kind of circles back around around and like i feel like this movie has that thing work because like scenes are repeated dialogue are repeated as you're saying like people are like recast in different roles and there's just no like there's really like especially when you think about like the beginning scene gets replayed again with you know naomi watts um in the car like you know when she's like you know we don't stop here um things like that um we haven't really talked about the performances of like the two main actresses i mean naomi watts this was like her breakthrough role um and uh laura herring as well like what's kind of kind of like what do you think about these performances i i think naomi watts gives probably one of the greatest performances i've ever seen on screen in this movie uh and i i think i mean laura laura herring i think is is brilliant in it too but the fact that she did not win every acting award in 2001 is wild to me and i i i just think it's a brilliant performance because it, it's essentially a double even triple performance um and she's just so good yeah it's i mean this movie has a weird oscar thing where it's like it's only nomination is best director which is deserved but like that never happens and i'm like I just can't imagine. Yeah, I don't. I don't imagine how like Naomi Watts isn't like cleaning up because it's. I agree with you. I think it's like one of the one of like the greatest performances of like any gender, any decade, any era, any country. Like, and like I think the like you know of course her performance as Diane is very compelling and tragic, but like her performance as Betty, I think is really strong because it's like she plays that like nineteen fifties ingenue in such a way where it's like it's so creepy <laughs> you know because like maybe you're not expecting it because like you don't really know what kind, what kind of movie it is quite yet but like it's like um she plays it so well and i think she's really tapping into the like aura of the movie of this like you know very uncanny valley type performance and type of movie and i think laura herring matches her really well as well and i, I think her performance, I think, is a little underrated just because, like, it's not as showy, but I think it's really compelling in its own kind of, like, vacuous mysteriousness. I think it takes a tremendous amount of skill to to perform in the kind of style that she's performing in as Betty. That yeah. Old Hollywood style of acting. I think for someone who um, has probably been trained more in a in a and a Stanislavski type, more grounded, realistic acting. Um, that it, it it's kind of hard to believably go back into that mode in a way that doesn't feel like parody. And yeah. I, I've I've seen some actors do it very well, um, like Naomi Watts here or, or um, Julianne Moore in Far From Heaven. Mm, yeah, uh, I've seen it done poorly like in the good german <laughs> um, yeah i, I right. think that, uh it's a very fine line to walk and she just she does it so beautifully and she wasn't even nominated for best actress that year and i you know obviously this is not an academy friendly film this was never going to be a huge oscar player i think the fact that david lynch snuck in is a testament to how respected he is amongst directors um but yeah the the lack of nominations in any other category i think is telling um that it was it was not particularly popular amongst the rank and file academy members yes um just want to say this was the year the Halle Berry won, 
Yes. Um, and up against uh, Judy Dench, Sissy Spacek, and uh, Renee Zellweger, um, and Nicole Kidman um, in Moulin Rouge. Mm-hmm. And like, uh, Naomi Watts' career is fascinating because, you know, she's been a part of some really great movies like The Impossible, King Kong, of course, you know, Mulholland Drive, of course, and like, um, but I feel like she is in this like weird thing where it's like she does a lot of movies that sound great on paper, but then just like go nowhere, you know, and like she's kind of in the shadow of like her Australian counterparts, you know, Nicole Kidman and Kate Blanchett um, and like just like can't quite get to that level. Like, I think she's a famous and prestigious actress, but like her roles just aren't getting her where like they're just not doing her any favors. And it's like. I don't know. I'm just, I don't think she's as like, I know she was talking about how she really related to Diane when she was like a struggling actress and um, like before this movie. But I have to wonder like what she thinks about her own career and like, um, you know, like she does a, like she does a Netflix show and that goes nowhere. She does a lot of like Oscar friendly movies that don't really go anywhere. Or like she'll work with like filmmakers who like just had a really big project, but then the project with her just doesn't quite work. So I don't know, it's interesting. Like I I mean just just gotta wonder, right? And like, you know, where she wants to take her career and kind of like what you know, kind of like what her thoughts are about like her successes and failures. I'm sitting here scrolling through IMDb <laughs> right. at her, her, her recent career. And it is interesting, like you said, how she he, she seems to pick good directors who are getting ready to make a flop. Like uh, when she did Gus Van Sant's Sea of Trees, like, of course, you want to work with Gus Van Sant, but Sea of Trees was god awful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just uh, she did the, the Diana movie, which was terrible and how but yeah she i feel like she should have been nominated for more oscars than she's been like i thought she should have been nominated for king kong i i agree yeah but she really when your your co-star is you know andy tennis ball or something yeah (laughs) it's like she was incredible in that and she is the reason why kong came to life in that movie it's because of her not because i mean you know andy circus is great but it was she made us believe it and i i think she's incredible and i would i would love to see her achieve that same level of respect as like a nicole kidman because i think she's every bit as good of an actress as nicole kidman is um yeah i agree like another great example is like she does this movie the glass castle which is directed by Destin Daniel Cretton with uh, also with uh, Brie Larson. And, you know, he had just made short term 12 and it's mm-hmm. like, of course you got to work with the director of short term 12 and like the glass castle is like his one, like, you know, not so great movie in his career. Cause after that he does just mercy, which I quite like. And, you know, of course, Shang-Chi, which is, you know, I think my favorite of the phase four movies in the MCU. So it's like, and it's like, oh my god, like it's this bad luck that she's in like the bad one, you know. Um, but definitely I feel like she is a tremendous talent, you know. Yeah, she's incredible. I would have had she been nominated, that that she would have been my famous my favorite performance in that category, I think. Yeah. Uh I mean she's nominated a couple years later for twenty one grams. Um mm-hmm. and you know, she was nominated in two thousand 12 for the impossible so it's like she but i agree i think she has like a few more nominations that are due to her especially king kong which is another great romance i should cover them on this podcast it is uh, especially i mean the the jackson remake the way that it recasts the relationship between uh Anne and kong um, yeah. is really intriguing yeah um any final thoughts on maholland drive that any kind of scenes or moments you wanted to like touch upon um before we finish up here you know i i think if you haven't seen moholland drive um don't let its reputation intimidate you i i even when it first came out you know it had this reputation of being completely inscrutable and nobody understood it and um i was a little nervous going into it especially you know being as young as i was um 
but it's a trap to try to figure it out. <laughs> uh, if you're spending time trying to to piece the puzzle together, um, and if you don't get every piece together, that's going to ruin your enjoyment of the movie. Don't watch it because that's not the point. Uh, it's it's the kind of film that you just need to experience and let the emotions wash over you and, and not try to overanalyze it. Um, because I think it's such a rewarding movie. Uh, so yeah, I, whether or not you, you understand it, quote unquote, um, is irrelevant, I think, to enjoying this movie. I, I totally agree with that. Um, yeah. I mean, I feel like this is a movie where it's like, you like look at Wikipedia and it's like all these accolades and this huge legacy is definitely very intimidating, but I think it's the rare movie that can like really withstand being known as like the greatest film of the century or whatever, just because it's so, um, you know, I, I it's so, um, hard. It's so like difficult to, to grasp. And so, um, open to many interpretations that I think can hold the pressure of that kind of legacy. And I agree that don't be scared. Um, I do want to mention that the phrase, this is the girl. I'm like, I feel like I say that all the time whenever I'm like, I don't know. It just feels like it comes up. Like I'm like looking for an actress that I thought saw in something or if like, I don't know. I just feel like I, like I, I think of that four phrase. I think that four word phrase a lot just because of this movie um and i'm like uh i i'm trying to i can't think of a like reason why but it's, it's one of those things i just like i think this kind of endured in my mind after this movie um and it's a very powerful phrase in the film and i, I think it really sticks in in memory um but yeah so maddie thank you so much for being here please tell the listeners where they can find you, what you're working on, anything you'd like to um, share and plug. Please feel free to follow me on Twitter at Cinemati, and that's C-I-N-E-M-A-T-T-I-E. Uh, you can also read my work at uh, www.fromthefrontrow.net or at inreviewonline.com. Yes, thank you. Please, please follow Maddie. You will not regret it. Um, uh, you can find me on Twitter at vernigay314 also please follow the podcast at itpod2bu remember to rate and review and subscribe to the show Um, as we're heading towards the last few episodes of Bad Romance miniseries uh, next time we're talking about Beaver to Heaven starring Gene Tierney I think the uh, prototype for you know the stalker with a crush type movie um you know so it's very uh very exciting Lo- love love the movie love look at the movie so it should be a fun conversation so please look out for that um maddie thank you again and thanks for listening thank you Que te olvidé.